0: Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, which of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices." And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it... She calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this text today. I will be honest with you. It's kind of like, um, it's not super thematic. It's more like four nuggets. And my hope is that like a nugget sits with you today and is, uh, speaks to you. Sometimes it's, um, you know, there isn't just one thing. There's lots of things. And so that's, what, that's just what I, I felt this week from the Spirit. So um, so that's where we are today. Uh, so last week we talked about a meal at the Pharisee's house where the seats at the table were sort of the like, centerpiece of the meal. And uh, Jesus invites the Pharisees in that text to change their perspective on honor and privilege and to change their idea of who even should be, um, they should be inviting for meals. Um, it was a very like uh, privileged people kind of centered meal that was happening there. And, um, and then this meal that we have here is quite different. Um, maybe even the opposite, you could say. Um, that uh, the Pharisees are still not getting it. And what do they say about Jesus when he watches, them having this, he watches Jesus having this meal? He says, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So every week, one of the first things I do is I'm like reading a text that I'm going to preach on. is I read through the text a few times, and I try to answer the question like, where's the good news in this text? And um, that was kind of the answer, uh, that, that line. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And very rarely do I, um, like, find the good news of a text that was meant to be a criticism, you know? Like, and that's what the Pharisees were, were meaning to do. They were meaning to say, this is something wrong with this man, when in fact what they were saying was wrong with him was actually the very, the very good news of who he was. Uh, so I want to look at two things today in this text mostly just like surprises about who Jesus is, because that's the whole point of these three parables, uh, one of which we don't actually talk, we're not going to talk about today specifically, but um, the whole point is to say like Jesus is going to constantly surprise you and me um, about who he is and how gracious and loving he actually is. It will be surprising to the point of offensive uh, throughout points in our life as we like grow in our faith and um, find ourselves sort of more and more in the stories of these Pharisees. So the first is just sort of the audacity of grace, the, um, that his mercy is more kind of thing, and how um, shocking and um, offensive that can be at times. And the second is the invitations, I think, that are on offer to us in these parables. So the first part. So in Jesus' culture, there were these um, pretty impossible expectations of God's people in order to be holy, uh, not just laws, which um, God actually made provision in the laws for people who did not have the same kinds of resources that other people did. Um, so God's laws in and of themselves weren't oppressive. They were actually very inclusive. Um, but what the Pharisees had done is was, it, they made these laws really hard to live by in their culture. They also added things like traditions do you guys remember? Maybe not. This is such a nerdy thing to say. In the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is like, this is Corbin, and you guys have made up this tradition, and you all those things about taking care of your parents. Do you guys remember that? No? I should have written it down. Anyways, so that's a tradition. And what is happening in the, par- in the story in Mark is that Jesus is hol- or, uh, the Pharisees are holding people to these traditions to the same level that they would hold someone to the law, um, which Jesus was like, that's, that is not that's not what you're here to do. That's not your job. So it was really difficult for people who weren't like set up in society to live now because of the religious leaders by the laws of God. They became sort of this oppressive thing. Um, and it became really hard to live out these laws and traditions because of things like poverty, uh, mental and physical illness, or social inequities in terms of be- being able to live by the law. So this was the world that Jesus was living in, um, that he was speaking into with these Pharisees, is that they had made it impossible to sort of be right with God. Unless you were like rich and powerful and a religious elite, you were not right with God. That was the, the, the world that they lived in. So if you found yourself, very often, if you found yourself in an unfortunate social situation, there were very little provisions for you to live a holy life. And therefore, you were counted as a sinner. And now there were also very real sinners. There were people who were like really deliberately living outside of the law of God. And we all know, as we all know, you know, as Paul put it, uh, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But this, what we're talking about here is more of uh, a system of identification of sin that was not generous. The offensive thing about Jesus is that he welcomed and ate with these people, these people who had like sort of utterly failed according to this system of life. And so they say about Jesus, you know, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus is like, yeah, I do. And he tells then these two parables to illustrate the difference between the Pharisees who believe Jesus uh, should be some kind of person and then who he actually was. He kind of mediates this disparity between these two things. He tells these stories as Jesus is the lost, as the shepherd who leaves behind the sheep who are already sort of in the fold. They're already safe. They're already in. Um, and he goes and finds the one. And then another story where Jesus is like a woman who loses something incredibly valuable and won't stop until she finds it. These are the stories he tells about himself to kind of pull the Pharisees again, story after story, into who he actually is. So um, with these parables, I think Jesus is saying to them and to everyone, you know, my grace is actually accessible to everyone, which is a really paradigm-shifting thing in this culture, as I said earlier. In fact, my love actually seeks the lost, Jesus is saying. It looks out for those outside of the fold and seeks to bring them in. That's the nature of God's heart. That's who he is. But not just people who are socially on the margins like we talked about last week. He goes and looks in the story for who? Youth pastor, come on. Repentant sinners, right? Right? which were often one of the same in Jesus' day because of the way the system was set up. But nonetheless, that is who he goes and looks for. At the end of each of these parables is that exact thing, heaven rejoicing when one sinner repents. So this lost sheep and this lost coin, um, I think like those of us who like sort of grew up in youth group days are told that it's always us when we're like sort of feeling on the outside, you know, like, when we're having a hard day, like, we're off in the forest and Jesus comes to find us. And I don't think that's necessarily bad, but I think it misses something important here when um, when it says, like, heaven rejoices over lost sinners coming home, you know, repenting, finding their way back to Jesus. In these parables, Jesus is not being sort of recul- reckless or sentimental about finding lost things. It's not like that it's, again, not sort of this youth groupy kind of, like, you know, you're not an outcast, you're one of us. It's not that. It's like, it's, a, it's a, um, a really beautiful thing where Jesus is able to hold up the like holiness of who we were meant to be and the grace um, that we will never be those things and that he can, he can make those two things work together in the kingdom of God. That's what's happening in these parables and that's, um, we don't like that as, you know, Pharisaical people. We want there to be sort of a, uh, a way of life that we must live into and if we don't, then we don't get in, you know. And that's what Jesus is trying to explain against. The incredible thing about grace is not that in Jesus there are no longer any expectations or guidelines for us, a way of holiness uh, to live our lives. That's not it. The thing about grace is that it allows us to not uh, rely on our uh, living up to these goals and guidelines and expectations in order to be saved, in order to know Jesus. And that is really good news. And that's what Jesus is trying to share with these Pharisees. It's good news for them too. Uh, The joke sort of here that is like lost on us as like people who live in 2022 is that when he says at the end of this first parable, um, you know, it's better for this one sinner who repents than 99 who need no repentance. And it's like, that's the joke that's like not that funny to us, you know. But what he's saying is like, everyone needs repentance. And you can be part of the 99 who doesn't see it, or you can be like the one who does. At some point in our life, and this is just true, I think, of Christians as we grow and maybe even after, right after our conversion, um, is that at some point in our life, we won't like that God is like this. And if you like, sort of even like, tend towards the pharisaical like I do, um, that will be a lot of your story, is not liking how gracious God is, liking it for yourself maybe, um, but not liking it on the whole. These parables and the one that follows uh, the prodigal son are not just stories about how wonderful Jesus is to sinners, um, but also how the righteous among us must guard against entitlement, not just in the systems of our societies like we talked about last week, um, but also spiritually. You and I have to guard against those things in our hearts. So let me tell you a Bible story about a guy named Jonah. Anybody know this story about Jonah? Um, So Jonah is a prophet and lived in uh, the, the days of the Old Testament. And God calls him to go to this place called Nineveh. And Nineveh is horrible. Um, it is uh, vicious. I mean, they did the kinds of things I can't say from the stage, uh, things that they did to people to, to torture them and harm them. It was a bad, bad place. So no wonder Jonah's like, I don't think I'm going there. And so instead of going to Nineveh, he attempts to go to another place, more like paradise-style place called Tarshish. Anyways, so then this crazy storm comes because God's like, you must go to Nineveh. And Jonah, instead of listening, just jumps out of the boat. And, um, and God, you know, has a fish swallow him up. All this, these things happen. Anyways, so Jonah finally gets to Nineveh. And um, what God has told him to do is go there and tell them to repent. God knows how wicked these people are. So he's like, you need to go there and you need to tell them that they need to repent and turn to God. So Jonah finally goes. And he says all of these things to these people. And the surprise of the book of Jonah is that they do repent. They, they, like, tear their clothes and, like, repent and do all of the, like, sackcloth and ashes and those kinds of things. And, like, really, truly feel sorry for the things that they've done. And the second surprise of Jonah is that God then says, like, okay, you are forgiven. And the funny thing about this book, the thing that rings so true to me and that I think about, you know, a lot in my own life is that Jonah is so mad. He is furious. He says, this is why I didn't want to come here. Because I knew, this is a direct quote, I knew that you were gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from punishment. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. Who has ever been more of a drama queen? But, like, I identify with this so much. This story has been so helpful to me over the years. He is so angry that God is so kind because they don't deserve it. He's lived his whole life to listen to God and to know the things of God and to be a prophet of God. And these horrible, vicious people get God's grace in one second, one moment of repentance. And it makes Jonah want to die. Even funnier, Jonah has this terrible attitude. And God's like, you're having a hard time. Let me grow a bush so that you can sit under the bush and you, you know, get out of the direct sunlight and maybe you'll be in a better mood. Um, And he is. So this bush grows up and he sits under the bush and he's like, as long as I'm under the bush, I'll be fine. And then, because God is hilarious, he sends a worm to eat the plant, to eat the bush, and the bush withers. And then he's mad again. And then God says, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And Jonah says, yes, angry enough to die. I mean, this man is like full of angst and like pharisaical anger, you know? Like that's just who he is. Go home and read the story. I wish that I could just preach on it today. It ends even like hilarious. It's, it's very funny. It ends with a question about how God might save animals. So if you like animals, you should go read it. Um, Anyways, what all of these things say to me is that we so very much like these parables in theory. When it comes to practice, especially for people that we feel don't deserve something, um, these are really, really hard to actually love and live out. I know people from my high school youth group who are also now grown ups and in ministry. and I have occasionally over the course of my life thought, I am going to write a letter to their boss about who they were in high school. (laughs) (laughs) I've really thought about it. Um, I have not done it. Um, Because those letters, frankly, could be written about me. You know what I mean? And so the thing is, um, is that... When we come to this place in our life, especially as we grow as Christians, we feel like more kind of like in the light of God, sometimes this thing can creep into us, this entitlement, this like, I've worked with God this long and this hard to get to this place, and now this person gets to come in out of nowhere and receive the same thing as me, and it does something in us. It does something to our hearts. And so what Jesus is calling us into in this, these parables is to see ourselves as people who are in the fold and should be rooting for those outside who, are, who need to be making their way into the fold and to, like, actually rejoice when those things happen, which we'll talk about more in a second. So what about seeing ourselves as the lost sheep? I made jokes about it being youth groupy earlier, but here's the truth. Um, I think we are actually invited spiritually all the time to see ourselves as the one lost sheep who jesus has gone to find a few years ago micah our worship pastor he got on this thing about recovering uh the joy of our salvation he talked about it all the time like why aren't we talking about this more and i'd be like i don't know that's let's let's you're talking about it right now um but so we he started like praying for this uh, recovery of, of the joy of our salvation for our church, like in our meetings and stuff like that. And when I think about this uh, moment of Jesus finding the lost sheep, like that's exactly what I think of. Because when we have these like our like beginning of life sort of like conversion, uh, spiritual life, conversion experiences, this is exactly what it feels like. It feels like, I hope it feels like this for you, but it felt to me, you know, like, Jesus knew exactly who I was and knew all the places that I needed him to come and find me and heal me and know me. It was so personal, the way that Jesus came to me when I became a Christian. Um, It felt as personal as this really beautiful moment in Scripture. That ought to be true for all of us. And if you haven't had that experience with Jesus, and if you don't find yourself in that space often where you feel personally seen and known and loved by him in such a way of him leaving behind everybody else and just coming to find you, then my prayer for you is that you get yourself to that space. I also think that um, some of us are lucky enough to feel this way in a relationship in our life, uh, for an actual human being to be the kind of person who like, comes after us like Jesus does after this one sheep. Uh, the woman who uh, kind of mentored me growing up, she took me to church from the time I became a Christian in sixth grade until I graduated high school and often would leave behind um, other people um, in order to find me and to meet me where I was. And so this parable really comes to life in moments like that in my life, in those kinds of relationships. And that's a really lucky thing. I think also, friends, that we need to be really wary about fancying ourselves as the one lost sheep and expecting those around us, the human beings around us, to intuit that they need to come after us. I think that's where a lot of us um, get to a place that doesn't work in our relationships there's a reason this is Jesus here and not humans. Expecting the people around us to intuit all the deep things inside of us is just unfair. Um, it's setting out an expectation that wasn't like agreed upon or, um, you know, can't, can't be lived up to unless it's stated out loud. And so I think we get, we get ourselves into these like tricky relational positions where like we've wandered off into the forest and we're like, where is everybody? Or where is this one person, you know? And I will say, um, y'all know the Enneagram, any of you? I'm a four. All the, all the sheep lost in the woods are the fours. Um, so I say this with all the love in my heart and humility, that it's almost always me. Um, but that I think it is, it is true for all of us at some points in some relationships in our life. Let me tell you one of the things I think the most, one of the most emotionally healthy things we can say as human beings. is to say to another person, I need you to meet me where I am and here's how you can do that. Because expecting people to come after us and know what we need and give that exact thing to us, that is the work of Jesus Christ. That is not the work of another human being. And so sometimes we need to say it out loud. Say it to that person. I need you to meet me where I am, and here's how you can do that. Occasionally we're the lost sheep, but more often not we're the paralyzed person on the mat that Jesus tells to get up and walk. So I'm giving you this story as a trade-off. If you tend to find yourself as the person who's like lost in the woods, um, frozen Two style, and you are like waiting for someone to come find you, you know, whoever that is, um, here's the thing that I offer to you instead as a person who also struggles with this. I was having this sort of moment myself the other day in my prayer time, and, um, and I was feeling so emotionally immature that I was feeling paralyzed. Do you ever feel that way? Like, I am so um, bogged down by the situation that I'm in that I'm not sure I will be able to actually move through it. And maybe I'll just sit here on my couch all day is how I was feeling. Um, and I just was like, Lord, I need you to, to say something. Like, I need you to tell me what to do. Um, and the response to me was, take up your mat and walk. Which for me was um, a reminder that I am not lost, that I actually have all the things that I need in order to get up and move into the world as a like, free and emotionally healthy person. I have everything that I need in order to do that. And I can sit and I can wallow, or I can be the kind of person who listens to the words of Jesus, lets them like infiltrate me in all the different places in myself, take up my mat and walk, like go out the front door. So that's my like story trade-off for you if you need a better story than being like the lost one. You know... And I think Jesus is saying to a lot of us more often than not, like, you have what you need. Take up your mat and walk. So lastly, I think one of the most important and often overlooked parts of this text is Jesus inviting us to rejoice with him. This gospel, uh, as we've talked about, is all about discipleship. It's, there's a lot of really hard things in this gospel, but also a lot of really beautiful and wonderful things. One of the things I said um, in my introduction to Luke earlier in the year is that Luke uses the word joy and rejoice more than all of the other gospels combined. Uh, he, he had this experience with Jesus that was like, it, as hard as it was, it was the best thing that ever happened to him. And it made him the happiest he'd ever been in his life, which is like such a beautiful thing to think about. And... Um, so we have this experience here of Jesus just living into this version of himself, that it, not version, this, this person that he was that was joyous and in inviting us into that. I have a degree in Old Testament, and that's not to brag. I didn't do anything else. I just did Old Testament. Um, and I love it. It's like in the deep places of my soul. And I think there's a lot of love and a lot of wonder and beautiful things in the Old Testament. But one of the things about it is there's just not, there isn't a lot of joy. I'm up to debate you about it. If you, if you want to, because I, I would love to be convinced otherwise. It doesn't feel that joyful to me. Um, it feels wonderful and lovely. But I think there was something about meeting God in the flesh that, like, proved the joy of God's heart. There was some, like, he needed to be embodied as a person in order to see that sort of joy and rejoicing of who God is in the deepest places in his heart. There was some, like, we needed to eat with him, you know, and, like, watch him live his life and hear his stories uh, in order to, like, really see that joy, and so Jesus is inviting us in these texts, in every single one, this, this, even this chapter uses the word joy, I think it's like 10, 10 times or something like that. Uh, it's a lot. What he's doing is he's, he's inviting us into the joy of what it means to be a person that welcomes sinners into the fold, who welcomes people not like ourselves. Um, he wants us to be joyful so that we can combat this sort of spirit of jo- Jonah and actually cultivate a spirit that looks more like Jesus's. It's not a spirit of cynicism or fear um, or anger. It's a spirit of joy. And I've been thinking about joy a lot this week because joy is really hard for me. Um, as I said, I'm an Enneagram 4, which means, like, I love the tragedy of things. I'm really comfortable in sadness. Um, and, and I think that's, that's an okay thing. That's the way that God made me. Um, it also means that I am really drawn to joyful people because I really need them in my life. Um, They, like, inspire something in me that, like, doesn't naturally live inside of me. So I I always kind of surround myself with these, like, really happy, joyful people. But I've been also, you know, thinking about how both of these things are really a reflection of the character of God, these these two sides that I think God holds in tension really beautifully and that we see in the life of Jesus as well. And that as a human being, joy and sorrow are always mixed for us. We sort of can't really, like, separate them in the end. I've been thinking about this um, moment. Sorry, honey, I didn't clear the story with you. Um, w- early on in our marriage when we went hiking and um, my husband took off his wedding ring for whatever reason for a second. And then it, just for a second, and it was gone. And, um, and it was just, like, this moment of, you know, sort of panic and, like, trying to decide, like, how much are we going to be upset about this and those kinds of things. And then we found it. And then him, who's, he is not a crier, um, shed it like a tear, which is a lot for him. And, um, and I've been thinking about that story as something that was lost and that we found, you know, and how, like, what, what is this, what do the tears come from? What, what, place out of which does, does that come? And it's, for me, it's this idea that, like, when we lose something and find it, we're so glad that we found it, but we also, like, carry with us the sorrow of what could have been. You know, like what could have happened? The life that could have been had we not found the thing. And so there's always for us this mixture of joy and sorrow. There's a story in the Old Testament about um, rebuild it, the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, finally, that happens after exile. And how you can hear in the crowd uh, both the like, uh, singing and joyfulness of the people who finally have their temple again. And the people sobbing who knew how great the temple was before. And you hear like, both this mixture of joy and sorrow. And like that's the human experience to me. And that's who Jesus is and who God is and who he's, like, calling us to be, is to be able to hold these two things in tension. But for those of us who kind of live on that side of sorrow, who will always be the ones mourning about how it's not how it was, you know, um, I think there is a a really important invitation for us here to live into the joy of who Jesus is and what he is calling us into. Um, This is what Henry Nouwen says in his book, the return of the prodigal son. He says, God rejoices, not because the problems of the world have been solved, not because all human pain and suffering have come to an end, nor because thousands of people have been converted and are now praising him for his goodness. No, God rejoices because one of his children who, has, who was lost has been found. What I am called to is to enter into that joy. It is God's joy, not the joy that the world offers. It is the joy that comes from seeing a child walk home amid all the destruction, devastation, and anguish of the world. And what I don't want for myself or for you is to, like, finally see the face of Jesus one day and be surprised by how happy he is. Like, by how joyful he is. Because I'm expecting some, you know, big, sad occasion. That I haven't lived into the joy in my own life that he's almost unrecognizable to me. That's not what I want. I want to know the, like, deep joy that Jesus had that allowed him to like know what he was headed towards and still have like the most wonderful time with his friends when he was on earth. That's the Jesus I want to know. That's the life that you and I are invited into, to be joyful, rejoicing kinds of people. Amen? Amen. Hello friends, this is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.